Let's pray, and then we'll cover 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you um, for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, um, for this letter of 1 Peter that is so rich um, in content. It, it, it's even richer, Lord, as I think about the man that you used to pen these words, um, the Apostle Peter. And Father, today as he, uh, through you, as you used him to pen these words, um, Father, there's a message on suffering. And so, Lord, in many ways, I, um, it, it's one of these messages that's a, a, a work in my own heart. And so I pray, Lord, um, that y- you would help us, Lord, t- to, to read your words, that we would understand uh, what was said in the original context, that we would glean principles by your spirit of how they apply to us to uh, today. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us ultimately to have a better theological understanding of suffering for our lives and this world are marked by much suffering. And so, Lord, we pray that as we study this um, subject that is so throughout the scriptures, that you would help us, Lord, to um, align our thoughts with your thoughts, that we would be able to, in the midst of suffering, Lord, that we would be able to um, rejoice, which seems so unnatural, that we would be able to honor you and glorify you as we um, face various trials in our own life. We do love you. We praise you. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. First Peter chapter four, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And Father, again, we come to you. We plead for your help in understanding of this passage, not just cognitively, but that our life, our who we are, that we would, um, Lord, that we would better understand how to live in the midst of a world that's suffering. Father, we thank you that we have hope in you. We thank you that we have hope beyond this life. 
But while we're here, we are going to face all sorts of suffering. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use this passage in our lives today to help us on this journey that you've called us to walk. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. This is a, this is a, I don't want to, this is a, this is a passage that's forced. It kind of sounds funny. I hate it when the Bible forces me to think and to ponder and, and that's joking. That's sarcasm. That's the the Bible causes to, to calls us and challenges us to think and to consider things. And, And this is one of those subjects that I feel pretty confident that all of us have either said or talked to somebody that has presented us with the question, how can there be a good, loving God when there is so much suffering in this world? I found like even I've, I've already kind of gone through this between the first message and the second message. This is this is sort of a, 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 a subject that is it's not something that I've like come up with all the answers for. And I'm kind of uh, it's it's a living and active sort of um, I feel like I have a, a, a thing of beef jerky in my mouth and I'm chewing on it and I'm pondering it and I'm considering it. This week of all weeks or the last couple of weeks, there's. Uh, well, really as a pastor, I see all sorts of suffering. Um, I, I have the pleasure to be invited into people's lives during, um, their lowest points. For some reason, I've been called to more suffering than I've been called to more weddings. Like I love weddings, you know, every now and again, you get a wedding. It's like, that's happy ministry. But the reality is there's way more like suffering opportunity in ministry. And this subject of, of suffering, on occasion, I'm asked to sort of respond to a situation that another person of faith has, has already gone in and done something. And there's sort of some, I don't want to say some undoing of what was said or done, but this was sort of one of those weeks where I was asked to sort of approach somebody who's going through a very delicate, I don't want to say delicate, I would say a, a substantial life or death situation with a child that is in the womb. There is a very low um, success rate that the baby will survive, um, but there is hope enough. It's, um, and so I was asked to address this person or to, to try to c- connect with this person who I really didn't know. And to help them because another pastor who is more of the prosperity gospel, that if you walk with God, if you love God, then your life will result in good finances, good health and good relationships. And by the end of this person's encounter with this person, they walked away with a guarantee from God that the child in the womb, that all of the medical doctors have said, there's a 30 to 60% survival rate have said this child is healed. And so that's not a fun situation to sort of like to navigate as a pastor. And so, and that this is brought up on a week or the last couple of weeks when I'm aware of the passage that I'm going to be teaching on. And there are those who think this, there are, there are Christian pastors And I don't understand how they conclude with what they conclude after any small sampling of reading 
I'll even just leave it to the New Testament. A lot of people dismiss the Old Testament, but but the Old Testament, it's it's all the same God's working, and I think there's many similar lessons. When our Lord Jesus, he was executed. The author of this letter, Peter, was executed for his faith. Judas is the sort of the exception. Let's leave Judas out of it. But all of the other apostles were executed, except for John. John's a weird one. I almost think what he had was worse because they did execute him and he survived. They dropped him into a vat. History sort of argues, was it water or oil? I don't know. You drop me into a pot of boiling anything to death. That is not the way I would choose to go. Um, He survived it. And I can't imagine the scars that he bore surviving being boiled alive that Nero, who was so superstitious, if you were to survive something like that, you were paranoid that this is something wrong. So he gets he gets exiled. And so in some ways, I wonder if John had it worse. You look at the early church. You look at what's happening here. Much of Christianity, even today in other parts of the world. There is terrible, horrible suffering amongst believers. Beyond that, believer or non-believer, it's. There is suffering all amongst us. The, the death rate is 100%. There's been a couple exceptions in history. I think two, Jesus and Elijah. And I think there might have been one more. Was there one more? I think there's two. Enoch, yes. He walked with God and then he was saying. So there's three exceptions. So I can't say 100%, but 99.999 out to the infinite of death is suffering. This is, a, this is within us. Eternities, we weren't created to die, so all of us have to experience suffering. There's death. Now, outside of death, we live in a fallen world, and so there's all sorts of suffering in this world that is broken. And so suffering is is one of these things that I believe as Christians, we truly need to have a good handle of our theology of suffering. Because if we are not grounded in our understanding of suffering, there's no telling where we can go. Uh, I'm going to address it more later, but the last service I wanted to do it at the beginning. I thought I wanted to do it in the beginning. I didn't do it in the beginning. And then I came back at the end and said, I kind of wish I did it at the beginning. But to go down to verse 19 in this passage, this whole section Verse 19 says, therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God. I just want to stop there. It's, this isn't one of those things I meditate on. Morning devotionals, that sort of thing. But the idea that your suffering is according to the will of God. Now, we're going to see that there's a variety of types of suffering. That there's clearly there's suffering for righteousness sake. And then there's suffering because of your own folly. Like there, there, there is a distinction or your the own evil within you. But I fear like in this, 
not I fear, because I got to be careful, because I don't want to like pray for things that I don't want to happen, and I don't like want to. But but I don't think I'm alone. And my inclination is that when suffering happens to me, when there is like for righteousness sake or for any sake, really, like, but when I find myself under suffering, my desire, my inclination is to get out from under it as fast as I can. I think that this is why the prosperity gospel is so popular because people want to get out from under it. We can't imagine that this could be the will of God. But I, I believe that when we live this way, we rob ourselves of maturing in Christ. And I don't believe that any of us as American Christians have the maturity to teach this passage with any sort of depth. Um, when I study this passage, I still have that man, that pastor many, many years ago who was from Sudan and he was smiling and he was happy and he was a great, wonderful speaker. And the only thing I remember about his message that day to the many, many people in attendance was that he said, you American Christians stop praying that we in Africa would stop experiencing suffering because we, your brothers and sisters in Christ in Africa, are praying for you that you would have the joy and the privilege to suffer for your faith as we suffer. And it was bone chilling because I, I like that message, but it was sobering. When he said that at that moment, I stopped everything about, I realized that how I prayed for our missionaries, how I prayed for everything. It was this, Lord, pray that I'd have this hamster bubble around me that I can just fly through life and nothing will hit me and nothing will hurt me. And in that talk, I, I realized how wrong my prayers were, how wrong I viewed things. And it's still, this is not... Um, this is not a subject that I think that we like to, 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 to wrestle through. And so the first thing as we get into this, I think Peter offers some very practical insights, some very practical ways that we can deal with suffering, how we're to handle it. The very first word grips me, um, beloved. I think sometimes we read the New Testament, we read the Bible and we, we sort of think it, of it as a, a sterile document, sort of um, like a theological book of doctrine that they're truths. And we lose the, the, the flesh and blood of it's God's word. But as God moved man to write his word, he used their experiences, their, their history. And so in looking at this passage, this beloved, this is the apostle Peter who suffered much, who he's writing this. And I don't know how long after this, I don't think very long that he would be executed under Nero. He's writing to believers that he loved as a pastor and cared for. There's speculation over was Nero's wrath already being poured out on, on the, the whole known world during the time of this writing or was Peter living in a place where Nero's wrath had unfolded on them and the storm cloud was moving this direction? We don't know. 
But clearly Peter understood the wrath that was either there or on the way. And he writes this as a father would write to his children that beloved children of God, my brothers and sisters in Christ, what I'm saying to you is important. And I'm going to finish reading the verse and I'm going to intentionally leave out a section. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you as though some strange thing were happening to you. So the first thing he says is, as you're facing persecution, suffering, this word fiery ordeal has commentators wrestling over, could this have been intentional on his part? Because it literally, it literally is the ones being burned. And we know that historically, that Nero in his wrath and in his insanity and in his craziness and his evilness, he would use Christians, he would mount them to a post alive, and he would set them on fire alive to light his parties, to, to give nighttime lighting. And so there... I don't want to say some funny threads, but there's some interesting reads amongst the commentators about Peter's selection of words. Is Peter, did he just happen to use this idea of the ones on fire um, dealing with persecution and trials? Or is he also like alluding to the reality? I don't know. It's very possible. It was a very real situation. And he says, don't be surprised. It's, well, can I, yeah, I can say it. it surprises me that Christians are so surprised that our nation's moving away from God, that, that, that our nation's not Christian, that the, the way people vote is not Christian. The things that, Christ, that, that, are, that people in our, in our nation support don't, that they don't support the things in the scriptures. It surprises me that Christians are like, What's going on around here? I can't believe they support this. I can't believe they vote for that. I can't believe that they're leading our nation. Why are you surprised? Why would you expect? Not you guys. I'm just saying them. You know, the other Christians. Like, like why? Like, why? Like, we should be surprised if they were living. Like, they're not Christians. There's no... The Bible makes it clear that if you follow after Christ, you are cutting against the grain of, of the thought of this present age, the thought of this present world. So don't be surprised if, if you're facing suffering for your, your understanding, your belief, your adherence, your desire to live in a world that reflects the truths that are found in the New Testament. Paul in Philippians 3.20 lets us know very clearly that we are dual citizens. Our, our, well, I wouldn't even say we're dual citizens. We, the reality is our citizenship is in heaven. And I think because as Christians, our desire is for things to run the way God desires them to run. We find ourselves, at, we're not creating a little heaven on earth. It'll never happen. And so Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery. Don't be surprised that you find yourself facing persecution, facing resistance. 
Don't be surprised, as he's already mentioned, that, they, that they're surprised that you don't run with them. And then they malign you for not thinking along those lines. And then in the midst of this, the part that I skipped over is sort of like this purpose statement, almost like a, this parenthetical sort of, and as he says not to be surprised for this fiery ordeal that's amongst you, he gives insight to, to our very natural reaction of how in the world can we not like the whole, this, like how? And he says, which comes on you for your testing. And in this, what we see is this grand picture of Peter's God. That Peter understands how great Jesus is. He understands that he's conquered death. He understands that he resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven. He understands who Jesus is and his power. And he understands that any suffering that we are going through wasn't like God fell asleep at the wheel and and all of a sudden a bunch of bad stuff happened and God's like, oh, no, no, how'd that happen? How'd that happen? This is an understanding that God is sovereign, which means he's reigning and ruling over all. This maturity in our Christian life, when we are faced with suffering and we're able to recognize that whatever this suffering is, and I would say limit it to to suffering that is beyond your folly, because Peter's going to make a a distinction This is suffering when you're living and doing right and yet everything is coming against you. I found it interesting that last week there was this this call from the text of you've been given a gift. If you're a Christian, you've been given a spiritual gift to serve, to get involved, that that. This, like in the context of Valley Baptist Church, if this is your church, you've been given a gift and God says that you need to be involved. Like you have something that we need as a body of Christ in this body. And so employ that gift. And it struck me this week that the next thing was suffering. And for years I've been telling people when they make the the step to be baptized or the, the step to start teaching a Bible study or the step to whatever it is to go forward with something that God has convicted you to do. I almost always say, be careful, because after you step forward, attack is going to come. Your, your car is going to break down. You're going to get resist, like whatever it is. It's just uncanny to me that Peter, right after this call for us to serve, then immediately goes into this, this persecution. But he says that this is for our testing, this refining, this, this picture of you in Christ, that, that suffering allows something to come out. I know I've heard it before, and it seems like the only illustration I've heard, and I think it's a good one. I'm, I drink, well, I definitely drink tea, green tea when I, when I sense that I'm going to get sick. That's when I become a really big tea drinker. If I ever walk up somewhere and go, you know what? I don't really feel like coffee. I feel like tea. It's like all the bells and whistles goes, go off in me that something internally is wrong if I'm craving tea and not coffee. And so I know amongst tea that there's like green tea because that's what I, cause that's what you're supposed to drink when you're sick. And then there's like on the other, like there's black tea. And I, apparently there's a whole bunch of other kinds of tea. But if you had me a tea bag with some like 
leaves with weeds in there. I can't tell you what kind of tea it is. But then suddenly you put the tea bag in there, you put the hot water, and what the tea is becomes very evident. Whether it's green tea, black tea, and you guys are probably better at tea, and there's, you're probably saying, Gunner, no, it's actually really simple. You can tell what kind of tea is in the bag. I don't know. But in this, that fiery ordeal, this suffering, Peter views this as testing within you, that there's like this refining, there's this becoming Christ-like, allowing this new nature that is within you to be tested, to be shown, to, to come forth. He goes on to say something that is very simple to understand. I think it's there's there's when he says in verse 13, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Pretty simple. I mean, it says, okay, here you are. As you suffer, the more you suffer and you partake in the sufferings of Christ, as you suffer for your faith, the more you do this, or as you say that this is my, this hand is the sufferings of Christ going up, he says that your rejoicing should match that. So if your sufferings go down, it's almost like your rejoicing goes down almost. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. And this is where I struggle. I mean, I think we all struggle because who likes suffering? <laughs> it's miserable. I almost, I, for me in my own life, when I'm suffering, I want to get out from under it. Months, years, years normally, when I get through a season, season of suffering, I look back and I, I'm able in hindsight to say, you know what? I'm so thankful for this like terrible season of suffering because without it, my relationship with God wouldn't be the same. I would not be able to, to serve in some capacity without this suffering. I would not be able to minister in this capacity. And there's a side of me in this whole section that Peter at least is challenging me. I don't know what he's doing to you is that in the midst of the suffering, be able to be joyful in the midst of it. Okay. This so that, this purpose, like why are we rejoicing? Peter goes to so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. So he tells us that as to the degree of our experiencing the sufferings of Christ, our joy is to sort of equal that, that matching. But then he gives us this, so that, which is this purpose clause, which sort of help like pushes us to like, why Peter, why should we, why in the midst of suffering should we? And then he says, so that at the revelation of his glory, and I love that Peter or all of the scriptures always point to sort of the end game. And this is part of the whole prosperity gospel in, in, is in, the, in the scriptures. All of the promises, all of the hope seem to, to, to press 
forward beyond this life. Now, now many of us, my life has gotten radically better because I've taken what God says, and I've tried, not perfectly, but to, but to really to try to apply the truths that, that the scripture names. And I think because I follow after God, I have a whole, I'm not self-destructing. And so life in many ways has gotten better. And I'm not, so I, I think that if you honor God and you follow after God, na- there's natural law for for life getting better. It doesn't mean that your problems don't go away. And for me, I was in the gutter. And so to start following up, things got better. But that doesn't mean that suffering's removed. But ultimately, when we start talking about the, like the prosperity gospel group that wants to remove suffering for following after Christ, everything... All of the promises, all of the hope is in this life, this body, this here, and and at the expense of the future. And Peter points us to the future. He says, because in that day, at the revelation of his glory, at that day you may rejoice, same word, with exaltation. Now, exaltation is one of these words I don't use in my common day vernacular. I don't know if you guys use it in common day vernacular. And I remember going through this. This is like one of those words. I'm like, I really got to look up the definition of the original word that's used in the Greek to kind of figure out that I have a good baseline. Because I'm afraid that if I get to this section and if somebody said, if I was sitting down and say, hey, Gunnar, can you write me a one section uh, or one sentence definition of the word exaltation as you understand it? I'd have been like, uh... I know the right answer is to sort of to be, well, well, happiness. We get frowned on happiness as, we, because we want content, contentment, joy. It's not joyful, be contentment. There might be some happiness, but 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 not grounded in emotion and 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 uh, sort of to be happy, but not to be acting like happy. It was kind of like the sense that I would come up with. Because do you guys use the word exaltation in your day-to-day life? I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Okay, good. <laughs> I have a really poor vocabulary, so I. Uh... So then I go to Lunida, which is a. a, a, a they define these words. It's and I can't tell you what the Greek word is, but th- this this definition caught my attention. The word exaltation, or the Greek word that we translate as exaltation is defined as this, to experience a state of great joy and gladness, often involving verbal expression, and the second part's a little funny to me, and appropriate body movement, to be extremely joyful, to be overjoyed, and to rejoice greatly. And so thankfully, during the last service, Debbie Johnson, she she shouted out an illustration that I thought was perfect. But I'm caught up. I'm like, okay. So when Christ appears in all of his glory, I want to rejoice to the measure that I suffer for Christ so that when he appears, that I'll be able to to respond verbally at some capacity and then try to figure out, I don't know what appropriate body movement is. Is it falling on the ground? Is it doing jumping jacks? Is it... And Debbie at this point screams out, it's like when you come home and you see your dog. 
And I'm like, okay, so like our tails are wagging like that. We are excited. Like this is Peter is looking for the future. And this isn't a man I'm going to get there. This is a man who denied Christ. This is a man who suffered and we don't know suffering. Like thinking about this, I'm like, we as a, we just don't know what it means to suffer for Christ's sake in large part. The closest, I don't know if I even shared this. I, I feel like I did. But a few weeks ago, there was a, Ben and I and a couple of pastors in our area were invited by Alternatives Women's Center to go to the breakfast at Marie Callender's in Escondido. And they had a, a speaker come in who's going to speak at their banquet. And so... There's a group of maybe 10 to 15 pastors. And we had a a semi-private room. It was sort of the wall was sort of open behind the speaker to where there were tables like down there. And so he was sharing with us about the church and our need to minister to those um, who have had abortions and and to really care and to love and, and, and really talking about Jesus and how Jesus loves those who have not only been through abortion, but also Jesus wants us to protect those, um, the innocent in the womb. The guy was not obnoxious. He was not loud so the whole place could hear him. And as he's talking, down the way, on the other side of the next room, at the very end, there was a group of, of three elderly ladies and an elderly man. And from this table, one of them gets up and starts screaming at us, telling us not just to leave the restaurant, but to leave the country, to take the garbage out of there. And I can't even, I've never been in a place where I'm trying to, what would, if I was in that restaurant and I saw something or heard something, what would, what would cause me to react at that same level. And there's not many things that I like, it would have to be a, like a violent crime or abuse to a child or something that unless I did it, there would be, but, but I think if there was like a, a a pro abortion talk happening, just talking about it, I don't know that I would get up and start. And I think that that's like the closest that I've truly come to being persecuted I mean, I've had friends, I've had strains in relationships, but this was the first. And that's not persecution, people. Like persecution sticks in stones and prison and death. And and so I don't know that I understand what Peter's writing about to the full extent that I should. He goes on to say in verse 14, if, and I know I've talked about the four conditional clauses in Greek that are translated all in if, and this is a first-class condition, which means if and you are, or since, you could translate it, if and you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of the glory of God rests on you. Now, I want to point out here, so here in verse um, 14, it says, so the reason that you're reviled is for the name of Christ. If we skip down to verse 16, we see, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, 
he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Notice, in this name. It got me thinking. I don't want to lose my place because I skipped ahead, but we're back on verse 14. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, I view the name of Christ as a good thing. We live, we live in, a, in a place, a day and age where... Um, when people are, well, what's your faith? Oh, I'm a Christian. Or I, you know, oh, they're a Christian. They're good. And this Christian, the word Christian has become very commonplace. Uh, in our nation, being a Christian is, I, I wouldn't say being a Christian is necessarily a good thing. But identifying as a Christian, it generally in our country is met with warmness, open arms. In the New Testament, the word Christian is only used three times. It's never used by followers of Christ. Nowhere in the New Testament is it that they referred to themselves. It was, it's always been negative, that it was a derogatory. Here, I'll skip ahead to my notes with Weist. He says, only three times in the New Testament and never as a name by Christians themselves, but as a nickname or a term of reproach. So when we read in this section and Peter speaking about being reviled for the name of Christ or the sufferings of Christ, reviled for the name of Christ, or if anyone suffers as a Christian, this is a derogatory statement that was used to the followers of Christ. It was demeaning. It was used hatefully. And so when he writes, if and you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Like just the fact that you took the name Christian was a mark against you by their culture that often resulted in death. And yet he says you are blessed. You know, my auto signature on my email is like blessings, Gunner. I change it, but I can't think of anything better. My military background should be very respectfully. Um, but this is like being blessed. You, we use this term, but, but to me, when I say, oh, I'm blessed, that means, oh, everything's really going good in my life right now. That means I'm healthy, I'm wealthy, I'm never wise. <laughs> but we use this term blessed in this way. Thinking upon this, just if you are reviled for the name of Christ, this is written by a man who was put to death because of his association with Christ. This is, he's writing to a group of people that m- many of them were killed for their identification with Christ. And he says, you're blessed. I remember this week I was at Costco and when I was running out, the guy caught my attention. You know, you got to let him swipe your receipt. And he, he looked at me and he said, have a blessed day. I didn't say, I said, thank you. Have a nice day. You know, you too, brother. But I kept, I kept like thinking about this. I'm like, does he want me to come out here and get like punched in the face for my identification with Christ? Or like, like, like what keeps coming to my mind is in Hebrews 11, we, we know the heroes of the faith. There are great names, but then we sort of, by the end, we sort of, we sort of peter out and we forget those without names who are mentioned and reading this. Hebrews eleven thirty seven. after all of these great names of the faith are mentioned, 
the author of Hebrews says concerning these great heroes of the faith who were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, wandering in the deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And I skipped a phrase intentionally because as the author writes of these great heroes of the faith, this great encouragement to us to, to run our race as he gets into 12.1, uh, get rid of the sin which so easily entangles you and run the race. Get serious. Right before that, he mentions followers who were stoned, meaning that they were, they were killed by having a boulder as big as you could pick up dropped on you by as many people who were present until you died. They were sawn in two. They were cut in half. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. And I don't think this is some high-end uh, clothing wear. What I see in this is they were naked. They had nothing. And as they came across an animal that they could butcher, they literally just took the pelt of the animal. Or the uh, Is pelt a word? Hey, I got it right. Okay, pelt. Okay, I'm not a hunter. Um, just throwing the pelt over, and that's all they had. This is horrific. Wandering in the deserts and mountains and caves and holes, they were had nothing. And the phrase that I skipped over about these people, men of whom the world was not worthy. And I think Peter says that if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. This is the man who denied Jesus. This is the man who tried to distance himself. And yet, I think he's saying, if the world looks at you and they see in your life and they connect that you are connected to Jesus because of your testimony, because of your lifestyle, because of who you are and you're suffering by the world, you are blessed. There is no greater thing in your whole life, not where you went to college, not the net, not your net worth, not your cars, not anything. There is no greater honor than somebody to look at your life and to connect you with Jesus. And if that involves suffering, there's no greater thing and you are a blessed person. That's just what I think what he's saying here. Oh yeah, because if I kept reading, look what it says. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. It's beautiful. We want nothing more than to abide with Christ. And if you suffer because he's connected to you, it's beautiful. That's the aim of the Christian life. This is what it's, it's all about. And I love that he makes this distinction. You know, we're advertising Kairos, the prison cookies. I'm all for doing outreach in prisons. They need Jesus. We are called to share the gospel with all people groups, even those in prison. But every time a, a prison ministry shares, inevitably they go to Hebrews 13, 3, and I sit there quietly and my blood boils. Because they'll use a proof text for what they're doing, 
with Hebrews 13.3, which says, remember the prisoners as though you were in prison with them. There are plenty of other times. We're supposed to reach them for Christ. But when the scriptures talk about remembering those in prisons, he's not... He is not talking about, or the scriptures are not referring to those who have murdered people, uh, that they find themselves under arrest because of their own sin, their own folly, their own evil within them. That's not to say uh, we support prison ministry. I like, we're doing Cairo's cookie, but we, I'm all for reaching. But what it's saying is your brothers and sisters in Christ who are in prison because of their faith. And the only reason they're under arrest, like I think his name's Saeed in Iran. There's a bunch of people in the Middle East that we need to be praying for. There are brothers and sisters in Christ. They're under arrest because of their testimony. I think of that girl recently who was freed from, I think, Sudan, who was pregnant, had her baby in prison. And the only reason that she was under arrest was because she would not renounce Christ as Savior. The scripture tells us we need to remember them as though it were us in prison. But that's a whole nother issue. Peter makes it clear that the suffering that he's talking about is not suffering because of your own folly. He says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler, which is kind of the idea of that you're all up in every else's business and stirring up trouble. He says, this isn't the kind of suffering that you caused yourself. That's not what he's talking. He's talking about suffering for righteousness sake. I have, I'm like, I'm the master of, I mean, I have so many stories of folly. And so God is there for you in our folly. And he wants us to, he just says, stop it. Don't stop. Don't (laughs) make sure that none of you suffers for those reasons. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, derogatory term, he is not to be ashamed. And I love this Peter, this real man who denied Christ, who that night in which he denied Jesus three times. Do you know him? No, no, no. He was ashamed of Jesus. He wanted to distance himself from Jesus. And then when that rooster crowed and it says that he just broke down weeping that he emotionally was just devastated crying because he recalled what Jesus had said about him. And I believe that Peter was a totally a broken man until that morning when Jesus and him at the sea of Galilee sat there over a coal fire, just like the fire that was present when he denied him the first time. And Jesus asked three times, do you love me, Peter? And Peter said, yes, Jesus, I love you. And he says it three times to him. And Peter's brokenness over denying Jesus. And we see Jesus recommissioning him in his calling. So this isn't a man that's looking down at us. This is a man who was ashamed of Jesus. This is a man who did deny Jesus. And he says, if you're suffering as a Christian, don't be ashamed. And I don't think that we, I've never had to be in a place where I've had the, maybe going into Saudi Arabia, I had to sort of fiddle. But I didn't have to outright deny I was a Christian. But where I see this denial is it will discipline us, will will guide us. And so the first part, it's not your work that secures you, it's his work that secures you. 
And then he ends with the verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall enter, who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And this is where I think we have a lot to learn, where I have a lot to learn, that in the midst of this suffering, that as we go through suffering and we get in this place where we recognize, like, I'm not suffering because of my own folly. I'm not suffering right now because of my own inactions. I got a speeding ticket because I was breaking the law, not because I'm being persecuted as a Christian. I didn't get a speeding ticket just now. But I hope you get my, like, when we find ourselves suffering, there's a deep maturity in our relationship with God when we can can stand in that suffering by his grace and say, Lord, you're doing something in the midst of this. And Lord, I want to honor you. I want to rejoice in the midst of this. I want to glorify you. Lord, help me to resist the desire to just get out of it as fast as I can. But as I'm here, Lord, help me to grow and not to miss out in whatever lesson is that you're teaching me in the midst of this. And so this passage doesn't send me on a quest to try to like, okay, kids this week, go try to suffer as much as you can <laughs> like this. I, the Life, this world that we live in, there will be plenty enough suffering coming our way. And so to know that we have hope that God is greater, whatever suffering you're going through, God is greater than that. That we're called to encourage one another. We're called to help one another. And I know in my life that I really, truly, as that pastor from Sudan, as he smiled and talked of the the beauty and the glory and the wonder that happens in our life as we like submit ourselves to suffering from Christ. I find myself looking at him kind of not personally like going through what he went through. But my prayer is that we as Christians here in our little part of the world that we would we would learn how to suffer in a way that we, we bring glory to God in the midst of it. And so, Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign, you are mighty, you are worthy of our trust, you are worthy of our praise. Father, we struggle um, in faith, Lord, as we go through various trials. There are so many different trials, and I do believe, Lord, that you're Manifold grace is able to meet our needs in whatever trials we're going through. And so, Father, we pray for our church family, for those that are suffering, that are going through all sorts of trials, whether it's for the name of Christ or suffering in this world, for just living in a fallen world. Father, we pray that you would move in our hearts, move in our midst. Lord, help us to mature in our relationship with you that in the midst of suffering, we can praise your name as Job did. We love you, Father. 
And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.